This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and I'm here today with Anne Keeling, Senior Fellow with Women in Global Health, a native of the United Kingdom, and has focused her career on issues related to health and gender equity, serving with government development offices, United Nations agencies, and NGOs in Pakistan and Papua New Guinea. Anne is also the lead author of a report Women in Global Health released July 7th on women's unpaid work within health systems. She's here today to discuss Women in Global Health's inspiration for carrying out the research, the report's main findings, how relying on women volunteer labor for health services actually undermines the quality of care, and what Anne and other Women in Global Health researchers hope to change in terms of women's participation in the health workforce. And welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you. So first, congratulations on the new policy brief, uh, which is called Subsidizing Global Health, Women's Unpaid Work in Health Systems. So I wanted to start off by asking you just to talk a bit about the rationale for the research. How did women in global health decide to focus on the issue of women's unpaid and underpaid work? And why now, in the context of the pandemic, has this really emerged as such an important issue? This isn't a new issue. This has been an issue that's been known about for a long time. 2015, the Lancet Commission on Women and Health estimated that women contribute $3 trillion to global health every year, but that half of that is unpaid. So we've known for a long time that women were working unpaid and really providing the foundation for global health from the work that they do in families, caring for relatives, to communities, but also that there were women working unpaid in health systems themselves. And that that work is not counted. It doesn't figure in measures uh, such as gross domestic product. For example, it is totally invisible. So women have been campaigning, feminists in particular, on this since the 1970s. Personally, I worked in Pakistan for nearly a decade and was involved in the establishment of the Lady Health Workers Programme, a very widespread community health worker programme very innovative at the time and and has become the backbone of the health system, especially for women and girls. But I've seen how those women have struggled to be recognised, to get paid and to be treated with respect. So I was aware of this issue. Um, Women in global health have campaigned on gender equity in the health workforce really since 2015 when we were launched. And pay has been one of the issues that we've been concerned about. And the pandemic has really shone a light on these women who've been working at the front lines of health systems in the in the pandemic, often without PPE, stigmatized, they can face additional violence. It's so it's an issue of health systems efficiency, but it's also an issue of economic justice for us. So that's really how we came into this, really trying to look at, you know, how many are there 
of these women working unpaid in, in health systems? Uh, why do they do it? And who are they? And what can we do about it? So that's really where we come in. You know, there's a statistic that gets thrown around a lot that 70% of health workers are women. And you kind of see this statistic year in and year out. And I was at a meeting recently on gender dynamics within immunization services. And one of the participants piped up and said, yeah, you know, like, we don't even know if that number is accurate, if it ever was accurate, and if it's accurate today. So, you know, I wanted to ask you about this number. Like, where does it come from? Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. Was it true? Is it true? And, you know, how do you get information and data about health workers? Yeah. So the number is true and it's not true. So that's an ILO statistic. This week, the ILO and WHO produced an excellent new report on the gender pay gap in the health sector. And they confirmed in there that the percentage of health workers who are women in high income countries is about 75%. In low and middle income countries, it's say 64%. It's roughly 70, but the women that I'm largely talking about that are in, in our report are not counted in these statistics. So community health workers are not counted. And these women who are not working in the formal sector in particular are not counted. So that percentage in low and middle income countries of 63%, 64%, we know is a vast underestimate because there are millions of women working as community health workers who are not counted. So I can say for sure that the figure is 70% building on those ILO figures, but it's probably more. And that 70% covers a lot of variation between health professions. So nurses, midwives are more than 90% women. Community health workers, again, we, we believe are around 80% women. So the real frontline health workers, the patient-facing health workers, it's probably more than 70% of those are, are women. So the figure's accurate and it's not at the same time. No, that makes, uh, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining the wide variety, both between high-income countries and lower and middle-income countries, but also the differences among the different elements of the healthcare profession writ large, and particularly you know, focusing on the issue of the community health workers who make up the backbone of so much of the labor, but really are not even visible in these numbers. One of the things that you discuss in this report is really the extent to which women are not only underpaid for their work in healthcare, but many are doing work on a completely voluntary basis, not even getting paid at all. They're undercounted. They're not even recognized in in official figures. Yes, there are some men who do unpaid health work, but as your report points out, it's primarily women. Given all of the other pressing tasks that women in these communities face, you know, with their family responsibilities and income generation and everything else, why do so many more women than men take on this unpaid or underpaid work? And what are they looking for and when they're mm. taking this on? Mm. Yeah, I think that's really the paradox that we set out to understand. And I think when people talk about volunteers, especially when they talk about volunteers from a high income country point of view, they may be thinking about, you know, well-off retired people who are doing some, some you know, excellent community volunteering on the side. But this is something different. So this is work in low-income countries primarily that women are doing, and it's part of a livelihood strategy, and that these women are some of the poorest women on the planet, and they're some of the busiest women on the planet. So it absolutely makes no sense that they would take on this additional burden of work. And when you look into it, there's a, a very diverse motivations. So I think one of them, which came out very strongly from the interviews that we did, that I think I should have known and I, I didn't really know, was the the really strong sense of pride that women have 
in being able to do make a positive contribution for particularly other women and children in, in their communities. And I don't want to romanticise this because I think we've heard a lot about women being volunteers. This is an extension of the unpaid work that women do because they're self-sacrificing. I really want to give credit to these women who do a solid professional job. I want us to be thinking about these women as professional women with expertise and that they're rightly proud of the work they do and the contribution they've made. So I think that's one aspect. There's an economic aspect. These women are from very poor households often have a very low level of education. They don't have an opportunity to get into formal sector work because of the gender constraints and other work constraints, domestic constraints they have. They can't travel to, you know, neighbouring communities to, to get paid work. There's a very strong sense of what is decent work for a woman, what is honourable work. Work in health is often considered a sort of decent work that families will, will sanction a woman doing. But a lot of women are looking for this unpaid work to lead to another opportunity, and sometimes it does. So they may take on a volunteer's role, but from time to time there will be additional work, say a vaccination campaign, that they get paid for. They may be hoping that they will network and find other paid work uh, opportunities through this. For some women, this leads to, to an asset. It may be a mobile phone, it may be a bicycle, but to extremely poor women, that's of value. So there's an economic sort of livelihood strategy in this, fitting this unpaid work with the other work that women are doing, subsistence agriculture, for example, looking after animals for the family. Very important point about social recognition, which is at different levels. Some women are recognised, they become part of the formal community political structure, and they're recognised in, in, in that sense. Social recognition for women who have very limited opportunities is, is important. For other women, it's an opportunity to learn. And we heard that from a, a number of women. It was an opportunity to learn something interesting and important. And for another group of women, it's about autonomy. It's about being able to get out of the house, maybe in more very conservative social structures where women don't have a lot of opportunity to do things for themselves, by themselves. There's that point about autonomy. So I think what we're looking at is a, a number of motivations, but... The bottom line on all of this is that women are backed into a gendered corner. The reason they do this work and that men don't do this work and that men are not generally expected to work unpaid is really because women have very limited choices because of their gender and they have very limited options. And the fact that women would still choose to do this work, but they would like to be paid. You know, we didn't speak to any women who said that they would like prefer to continue as a volunteer. Women enjoy this work, but they would like to be paid and they would like to have a secure, decent income to go along with this work. For some, there are a range of reasons, but for many women, it could be a ladder or a way to more paid labor. Yeah. But for many, it also sounds like it's a way to gain that kind of social recognition and you know, be out of the household in a way that is still viewed as, as acceptable by the community, but you know, yes. really still always looking for that way to extend this work further professionally and, and really find ways to, to earn income from the labor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to turn to this question then of, you know, how this unpaid work or underpaid work both, you know, really affects the health sector. Somebody, I guess, could argue that having volunteer labor reduces expenditures, so it's cost effective. But in your report, you're really arguing this is not the case. And so I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about the relationship here between gender dynamics and quality of care. 
if we were to invest more in these female health workers' recruitment, training, retention, and development, giving them a ladder not only to greater economic opportunities, but also leadership roles, how would that potentially impact the quality of care that they're able to provide? Yeah. So I think what what we've got is we've got a very large number of women here, and we're talking about six, six million women, but we know there are more, who are actually the experts on health in their communities. And that's incredibly valuable expertise. They may be working with you know, marginalized communities. They're, they're actually the experts on how you get health systems to be able to deliver and connect with communities. For millions and maybe over a billion people, their first point of contact and sometimes their only point of contact with the health system is through a woman community health worker. And so they are the, you know, the fundamental bridge between the community and the, and the health system. And yet, even in the work that they're doing, they're very diverse programs, but they generally have a pretty incredible impact. And that's me- been measured by some of the larger schemes in terms of you know, maternal and child health, delivery of vaccines, etc., Sometimes their work is undermined because the health system, for example, doesn't supply the drugs that they need. The, you know, the basics that they need to be able to, to do their role, they can be undermined in the communities by the health system not delivering the things that they have promised. And often they're marginalised, they're not listened to, as you've said, they're not in the leadership structure. And so we're really losing out, I think, on all that talent and knowledge. There's quite a high level of turnover, high level of attrition. And in the pandemic, what we saw loud and clear was a new heavy burden of work and risk because many of these women were sent out into communities to contact trace, for example, uh, without adequate PPE or even any PPE. We saw low morale and women went on strike in a number of countries. If you consider how these women work, they're very remote from the centre. They'll tend to be working maybe in pairs, in community outreach work. They're not in a good position to organize in terms of, you know, unions, associations. That's one of the reasons why they're in, they continue to be in this position is because, because they don't have much bargaining power. So they went on strike. If we could see them as assets and not volunteers and invest in decent work for them, formalize jobs, you'd actually be making the health systems much more resilient. And I think COVID has really shone a light on that loud and clear. We have a serious global shortage of health workers. WHO's latest estimate, which was pre-pandemic, is that we're short of 10 million health workers and particularly short in low-income countries who are really going to struggle to reach universal health coverage. And the pandemic has just made that so much worse. If we could be really bringing these women into the health system by giving them a bridge into formal sector jobs we could be progressing these women through the structure and filling the jobs that low-income countries can't fill. And there's an example of that from India. India's got a community health worker program called the Ashes. They're nearly a one million all-female cadre spread throughout India. And under the Asha program, they are supported to finish their secondary schooling and they're given preferential access to nursing training, nursing school. Not many of them have been able to make that transition from community health worker into nursing. But it just shows that it's possible to do that. And if we were making bridges like that, we would really be retaining the knowledge and the expertise, building on it and bringing those women into the system to fill vacant health worker jobs. It just makes absolute sense. You know, it's a it's a win-win situation. So, I mean, it sounds like you have this group of women who are working at the community level. They live there. They know the situation. They know the families that they're working with. And in addition to the fact that they are trained to do the work that they're doing, 
But, you know, as they have been exposed to greater insecurities, exposed to coronavirus infection, and, you know, really seen themselves not be supported, many have left. And and so you're losing all of this uh, knowledge and and really know-how. So really finding ways to support them to stay in those jobs and then, you know, to move up to leadership within their community or or beyond, it sounds like it could also be an opportunity to really have a more responsive system to community needs as well. Yes, absolutely. But the basic fact in all of this is that we don't know how many there are. There is no global picture of community health workers. So we don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. When the pandemic started and a number of governments were looking at ordering PPE and trying to work out where PPE was needed, they really didn't have any idea who was out there and and who needed to be protected. So when you have a situation like that, in a way, these are the people that provide the foundation for global health security for all of us. Because if they're out there working on the pandemic, if they're out there contact tracing, informing communities, distributing vaccines then they are stopping coronavirus in its tracks in their situation or Ebola or whatever is the health emergency that's coming across the horizon. And that impacts on us. So although for many people, you know, this may seem like it's a long way away, in a totally interconnected world, I would hope that the pandemic has shown us that it's about looking at everybody's health, about everybody's health system. And we should be looking at these women who really form the foundation for all our health and are very much as the title of the report says, subsidizing global health. So this report formally launched in the beginning of July. Yep. Now that this report is out, we've got a number of global health milestones along the horizon. The Financial Intermediary Fund has been approved and is likely to get launched in in the fall. There's a global fund replenishment, uh, ongoing discussion about universal health coverage. At this point, you know, what are you hoping that this report is able to achieve as, as these other conversations go forward? And you know, are you optimistic that greater attention will be paid to the ways that gender dynamics undermine women's potential and health outcomes? And I guess I would just also ask you to you know, reflect on what indicators or information would satisfy you and your co-authors that positive change is actually being made. I think to start with the question of optimism, am I optimistic that change will happen? I would say no, not without deliberate action, because I I really started by saying this is not new and this has been known about for a while. So what we're doing with this report is, I think, shining a spotlight on it so it's harder to ignore, trying to bring across the real stories of the women involved so that their testimony is data, essentially, in the absence of data. So just to make it harder to ignore, but I am not sure as the pandemic subsides that there will be real change unless we decide to push for it, which is why Women in Global Health exists. I think if you look at what happened at the World Health Assembly, the ASHA workers from India that I was speaking about, the one million women ASHA workers who've been absolutely critical to the response to COVID in India, they've done an extraordinary job and they were awarded collectively a Global Health Leaders Award at the World Health Assembly, but they still don't have proper jobs. (laughs) So, you know, they can be recognised, they can be given collectively a global award like that, they have been given a slightly higher level of incentive pay, but they don't have formal, secure, proper incomes. They are still working basically on the same conditions that they were working on before with a slightly higher incentive pay. 
I think the grounds for optimism there is that because of the pandemic and during the pandemic, they became much better organised. They now have much stronger unions. And I think that as a group of one million women, they stand a chance now of really pushing to achieve formal, secure jobs. But I think we are a long way off. And I think that women across the board will be asked to go back to gender inequality as, as usual. But it won't be as usual because we will be starting at a, a lower level than we were before the pandemic. Last year, 2021, Women in Global Health launched an initiative which we now lead with France, and that's the Gender Equal Health and Care Workforce Initiative. And what we're aiming to do with that is really to convene a political community of governments, international agencies like Global Fund, Gavi and others, to really work together so that this issue is, is not lost. Because I really believe the gender imbalance will not right itself. We need to keep working at it. So what are we really looking for after this report? I think one of the most important things, and I've sort of mentioned it before, is that we would like governments to start counting community health workers. This work is invisible and it needs to be made visible. The Global Fund Community Health Impact Coalition and some other partners launched in January a new campaign called Count CHWs, Community Health Workers, piloting methodology to enable governments to actually count their community health workers. And I think in a way that's the, that's the first place to start, to find out who's out there, what they're doing, whether they're paid or not, et cetera. So let's, let's do that first. I think with our report, I would really like there to be recognition that there are at least 6 million women working unpaid and underpaid and that their work has value. I think to some extent you get a narrative that because these women are not in other paid jobs, that they're not working and that it's okay. You know, they can do some volunteer work because these are women who've got plenty of time to do it. You know, that is just entirely wrong. They are the busiest women on the planet. They have a heavy load of other unpaid work, but none of that figures in national statistics. So I really want the message to be out there that, you know, women are not born with a self-sacrificing gene. They're no different to men. They're backed into a gendered corner on this one and they do this work and they do it well and they're proud of what they do but they need to be given the option that they would like to be given of being paid for the work that they do. We would like to see governments fulfilling the many commitments that they've already made to ending this practice and ensuring that women have, you know, decent and fairly paid and safe work. That's in ILO conventions, that's in the Sustainable Development Goals, it's in countless women's rights conventions. WHO has produced guidance recommending that community health workers be paid. So it's all down there, it's all it's all agreed. It's just a question of the political will to actually get this done. We would like to see in the new global structures that you've talked about, but also new global agreements going forward, whether it's Universal Health Coverage High Level Meeting next year, 2023, which is going to be an important moment, whether it's work on the pandemic accord. We would like to see agreements, at least that it's noted that unpaid work should be formalised in in health, because at the moment it's it's not there, and we struggle. We you know put our hands up and we make drafting suggestions, and it's amazing how quickly those just fall off the, the table and it doesn't get there. So that really needs to go forward. We would like to see governments going ahead and formalising these jobs because there are precedents for countries that have, have have done that. Liberia is one, Ethiopia is another. There are examples of that this can be done. And examples that really show the rate of return of doing that, of treating this as, as an investment. We would like to see donors and major funders of health programs looking at, in a way, their supply chain, looking right, right down to community level 
to reassure themselves that their programs do not depend on unpaid work by by anybody, but um, particularly by women. And if it does, to change their policy. And we saw the American President's Malaria Initiative do that last year and bring in a policy to say that where they find unpaid community health work, that there will be a budget of money allocated to pay for that. So, you know, there are things also that donors and funders can do. And I think the most important thing that we can do is really start to change the narrative that women working at community level are not volunteers. They're health professionals. Let's talk about them as health professionals and let's talk about them as drivers of change because that's exactly what they what they are in their communities. And the other part of the narrative I think that we must change is that we can't have strong health systems or global health security without a new social contract for women health workers across the board. And that's safe, decent and equal work, but it's also an equal place in health leadership. So we're looking for all of those things. And I think there is a growing recognition around this. But if we don't deliberately keep putting this on the table, it could easily get forgotten. So it's a challenge and a problem that has been around for a number of years. It's been recognized for a number of years, but has in some ways because of the impact of the pandemic on the health workforce overall really gained some greater visibility, particularly around the insecurity that uh, unpaid workers face. You've made a number of important arguments here around the economic impacts, the cost benefits that really could be accrued from formalizing community health workers and and really paying them, but also the improvements to quality of care and improvements or enhancements to global health security, you know, in part because these are women who are based at the community level. They know the families that they're working with and they have the trust and confidence that families feel comfortable sharing that there's an outbreak or somebody is sick or something. So they're in many ways the first line of, of disease surveillance as well. You've talked about, you know, really the importance of just fulfilling commitments that governments have already made, but also really finding a way to appropriately count women who are engaging in unpaid work and and really, you know, see them as as part of the health sector. Yep. But I was intrigued too by what you said about the women in India who had found opportunities to better organize during the, the pandemic. And yeah. perhaps there are ways to encourage uh, learning kind of across countries. Here is what we did here and maybe this will work in your setting or something. You know, if there are ways to share lessons yep. across those communities. It's a serious agenda. There's a lot to be undertaken, but sounds like you know this report along with the WHO ILO work and the many opportunities coming up over the next several months offers some some really prime targets for continuing to raise the visibility of, of this issue and ideally really you know begin to make progress as we move into yet a new phase of the pandemic and focus as a global community on how we can learn from what's happened. Anne Keeling, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Congratulations on the release of of this important report. Thank you. I'll look forward to following progress on these debates as things move forward over the next few months. Thank you very much. And you will be hearing more from Women in Global Health because this is a very important issue. So thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 